well. Uh, But one of the things that researchers have discovered is that while there might seem to be a decline in religion, uh, there's been a sharp uh, incline in uh, what's called the religious nuns. And this is a group of people that uh, believe maybe in the importance of religion, but don't feel really comfortable with affiliating with any specific institution or any specific religion. And if you talk to them, many of them, they would say something along these lines. They would say, I consider myself to, to be a very spiritual person, but I don't consider myself to be a religious person. They embrace a certain measure of spirituality, but feel very uncomfortable embracing the institution of religion. So what it really does is it begs a question, and the question is this. Is there a role for the institution of the church in our modern world? Or is it just simply okay for all of us to worship in our own private way or with our own private spiritual exercises? Or does the scriptures present us with something called the church that actually is really important? And that's what we've been talking about. We've been using the book of Acts as our guide in this series, and our exploration brings us uh, to chapter 3. I'm going to be reading verses, uh, about verses 1 to 21. This is God's word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you. 
And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This is God's word. Father, be with us as we look at your word. May we encounter the power of your spirit as we think about the gospel and as we dwell on the message of truth. So be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Again, if you were with us last week, uh, you saw as we began to look at this book of Acts that the power of the church comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come to us through uh, innovative strategies or slick technological presentation. Instead, the power of God often is manifest in our weakness, not so much in our strengths. And so this week, I want to build upon that, and I want to ask kind of the next question that comes as we dwell on on the power of the church. And the question is this, what does that power look like when it is unleashed in the life of a person, but also what does the power of that spirit look like when it is unleashed in the context of a community? What does it look like in the context of the church? What uh, are the marks of the power of the Holy Spirit, or what is the evidence that we can trace to know that the Spirit of God is working in our lives and in our midst. When we first come to the book of Acts, we, we, we instantly kind of think uh, that the marks of the Spirit or the evidence comes in the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, uh, whether it is healings or the speaking in tongues. And see, those things were were certainly evidence of God's work of the Spirit in the time of the book of Acts, but they, they may or may not be especially normative for the way that we think about the church today. And so the question becomes, then what is the evidence? What is the evidence of this power in our midst? And what we'll see from Peter's sermon, and also if you remember his sermon from chapter 2 last week, what we discover is that first and foremost, the evidence of the power of God in our midst is two things. It is repentance and it is faith. Repentance and faith. When the Spirit of God is on the move, repentance and faith are present. So let's first look uh, at this thing called repentance, and we see it in, in Peter's sermon, verse 19. He says very plainly to his audience, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed to you, Jesus. Now, believe it or not, our culture, uh, whether we realize it or not, thinks a lot about this idea of repentance, and it certainly talks a lot about this idea of repentance. Uh, just this last week, I found uh, an article in the Washington Post uh, that, was called, that was entitled this, uh, Famous Abusers Seek Easy Forgiveness When Repentance is Hard. 
And, and what the article was is it was written by a, a Jewish rabbi who has been reflecting on the news that she has been seeing every day. And she is uh, reflecting on it in light of the current Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are going on right now. And what she notices in the article is this, is that, that many of the abusers uh, who have been exposed through the, the kind of Me Too movement and all the, the cultural things that have been going on over the past year, she noticed that many of these abusers are kind of subtly making their way back into uh, the limelight after what seems to her to be a very brief absence. And what she highlights is that for many of them, after kind of tearful public apologies and what seems to be a very short time out, they are now back at it. They are now back into their roles. And she, she laments the fact that she feels that, that she has observed cheap forgiveness that often has been sought after with each one of these abusers. And she really speculates whether true repentance has really happened in each one of these situations. You see, repentance is, is a deep, deep scriptural concept. And when you think about it plainly, it means this. It means that we walk in a certain direction with our lives, and at some point we wake up. And we discover that the direction we've been walking in is not the right one, or at least it's not one that honors God. And so what we do is we make the decision to turn around and to, to send our lives in a different direction, to walk in a different path that honors God with our behavior. But one of the components to this idea of repentance is what the scriptures call godly sorrow. That has to be pre uh, present for true repentance to happen. And godly sorrow is not simply sorrow over the consequences of our sin or the consequences that we have to live with, but this is a sorrow that uniquely understands the carnage of sin and the way it affects not just our lives, but the lives of those people who are around us. You see, repentance is, is deeper than just asking uh, another person for, to, to, uh, for their forgiveness or expressing that, that you're sorry. What repentance does is it examines not just the surface sins that often get us in trouble, but the deeper sins that often lie behind those surface sins. It recognizes the complexity of sin in our lives. In fact, someone once wrote this about our hearts. They said, our hearts are an underground network of caves, all interconnected and all of them full of sin. And as light shines in, it reveals a cave, but it also reveals together with that cave passageways to about 10 more caves. Now, what are they saying? How does this play out? Well, think about it this way. Say that my uh, wife confronts me one day saying, you know what, you're, you're not a very good listener. And of course, this is a totally hypothetical situation. Imagine she comes and confronts me about not being a good listener. And, and what I realize is she's confronting me with a presenting sin, and that is that I'm not listening well. But repentance not only deals with the presenting sin, but it also explores the deeper sins that may lie behind the presenting one. And what true repentance does is it examines the depth of it all. 
It asks questions like, maybe I don't listen because I just deep down don't value enough what she has to say. Or maybe I don't listen because my pride is telling me that what I think about this issue is the only thing that really matters. Repentance might ask the question, maybe I don't listen because I just don't want to be bothered or inconvenienced by something that is being said. You see, this is what repentance does. It confronts deeply our sin, not just the shallow or presenting ones. It doesn't ask for cheap forgiveness so that we can just move past things as quickly as possible. It is willing, in some ways, to sit with sin and to recognize its depth, to truly grieve over our sin. You see, in Peter's sermon in our passage, he is confronting boldly his audience with their sin. And what we realize is that he is speaking mostly to a Jewish audience in this sermon, and he he doesn't mince any words. He goes right after him, verse 14, but you have denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. See, Peter doesn't mince his words. And the gospel doesn't do that for us either. It calls us to recognize the weight and the damage of our sin. It calls us to turn away from it, not just the presenting sins, but the deep ones as well. You see, friends, when we talk about the gospel, we we say it's good news. That's what that word gospel really means. And we should proclaim the gospel as really good news. But the truth is, we can only recognize the good news. It can only really be relished after we have first understood the bad news. And the bad news is this. This is something Jack Miller used to often say. The bad news is this. He said, cheer up, you are far worse than you realize. And that is often what the gospel tells us as well. So when it comes to our topic, do you want to know whether the Spirit is working in your heart? Do you want to know whether the power of the Spirit is functional in your life or in this church or in this community? Then know that repentance is the fruit of it. We have to ask ourselves hard questions when it comes to repentance. Questions like, when was the last time that you personally felt utterly broken because of your sin? When was the last time that, that you went to your spouse or your friend or your coworker and expressed real sorrow for the way that you have hurt or damaged them by your words and actions? When was the last time that you stopped boasting in your strengths and, and instead started highlighting and boasting in your weaknesses? When was the last time that you were moved to tears in either personal confession or corporate confession that we do here at the church? When has the power of the cross so deeply moved you simply because you recognize just how much you need it? See, friends, these are all evidence of repentance. They're evidence of the Spirit of God working in your life. One of the things that we often come to realize is that often our apathy towards God or our apathy, our half-hearted feelings about the gospel or even the cross are simply because we do not repent enough 
as his followers. But the truth of of what this sermon tells us, of what the scriptures tell us, is also this. Is that repentance is never alone when the Spirit is at work. You see it in the Scriptures, you see it in Peter's sermon. Repentance is always coupled together with faith. It's always coupled together with faith. Look at verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see, our, our story goes that Peter and John are, are walking in the temple, and they come upon a man who had been lame from birth. Some people think it, he had been lame uh, for decades. Uh, he had never known what it is like to walk, never known what it's like to run or to dance or to move around. For his whole life, he had positioned himself in front of this, this temple gate. And many people believe that this, this temple gate was some, uh, had 20-foot had uh, high doors that were inlaid with brass and gold and silver. And every day, this man's friends would bring him to sit by this gate, and he would beg for alms each day. And that was his practice, day in and day out, for decade after decade. All he had ever known was relying on the almsgiving of others. And of course, one day, our passage tells us Peter and John comes along, and they don't give him any money. But instead, what they do is they, they, they invoke the power of God to restore this man's legs. And the passage tells us he immediately got up, he got to his feet, he walked for the first time, and he immediately knew how to dance. He began leaping and dancing throughout the temple. This passage is careful to mention that four times that he immediately went into motion. And so what does Peter do? Peter seizes the opportunity. Peter was always good at seizing opportunities. And so he seizes the opportunity to preach about how this amazing healing happened. Because verse 10 tells us that everybody who saw it there was filled with wonder and amazement as to what had happened to this man. And so what the passage tells us is is Peter preaches this sermon, but it says the man was draped all over him while he was preaching. The man was clinging to Peter while he preached. And what Peter makes clear is this, that this man's healing isn't due to Peter, It isn't due to John's skill or his personality. Instead, God was the one who made this lame man well. And the instrument of his healing was faith. The instrument of his healing was faith. You see, the scriptures tell us that faith is this powerful transfer in which we transfer the trust to make our lives work away from ourselves and instead on to God. And so, if Jack Miller is right, that we all need to cheer up because we are far worse than we realize, that's what repentance says, faith tells us this, cheer up because you are far more loved than you can even imagine. You see, repentance, when it is wrought of the Spirit of God, sets the table for faith. The godly sorrow that comes from repentance was never intended to be the end in and of itself. What is it intended to do is to lift our eyes to the Savior, to see His sacrifice 
on our behalf. And that's why, friends, whenever we do a worship service, we always follow up a confession of faith with what? An assurance of grace. See, Thomas Watson, who was an old Puritan, he said this. He said, spiritual sorrow will sink the heart if the pulley of faith does not raise it. And what he meant was this. If you have repentance without faith, then all you will wind up with is godly sorrow. The converse is true as well. If you have faith without repentance, all you wind up with is apathy. And that's why the power of the Spirit brings both to us. Because in the moment of our greatest weakness, in the moment of our realization of sin, what the gospel does is it lifts our eyes up in faith to Christ and we receive the comfort of our souls. And that's why our faith must have the correct object. It's why our faith must be in Christ. You see, it's not simply okay for us just to have faith or bear faith. Instead, our faith must be placed in a trustworthy object. And faith is only true faith when it is in Christ, when it is transferred from faith in ourselves onto Christ and his finished work on our behalf. And so the work of faith that the Spirit calls us all to do is to gaze deeply at Christ. The Holy Spirit draws us to stand in wonderment and amazement at Christ and in His work for us, His work on our behalf. And so the question is this, when was the last time you have been truly moved by His sacrifice for you? When was the last time that you shed tears of joy because he has taken your place and your sin has been atoned for? You see, when Peter is, is, is preaching this sermon, he is communicating the message of the gospel to people who have never really heard it before. And what he's saying to them is, is, if you want to enter into this life offered to you in Jesus Christ, then the path for you is repentance and faith. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the easy mistake for all of us is this. It's to think that repentance and faith is, is simply the entry point into this life with Jesus Christ. That, that it only happens at the moment of salvation. But what we learn as we look at the scriptures is this, that repentance and faith happens powerfully at the moment of salvation. But what we also realize is that it is also the, entire, the entirety of the Christian life from start to finish, and it is the life of the community of faith, the church as well. Martin Luther said this, he said, the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. And Colossians 1 says this, just as you received Christ, so also walk in him. And what, what the writer of Colossians is saying is this, is that repentance and faith is the starting point of this walk, it is the ending point of this walk, and because of that, it is everything in between. And so, friends, is the Spirit at work in your life? 
Because if the Spirit is at work in your life, then it will look like repentance and faith. We also have to ask ourselves, is the Spirit at work in uh, the church? Is it at work in our church? Is it at work in the church here in America? Are we a community that demonstrates the power of the Spirit to the watching world? Because if the Spirit is at work, it will look like repentance and faith. Let's pray.